Welcome to the How Coronavirus Saved My Life podcast. My name is Christine. I'm a mental health nurse practitioner who got coronavirus in April of 2020 and had long COVID symptoms for months. I couldn't figure out why I wasn't getting better until I healed myself through unwinding my childhood conditioning. This is my story on how coronavirus saved my life and how I healed myself along with others sharing their own personal stories and how they are navigating through their own healing. How Coronavirus Saved My Life, Episode 38, The Memory. Today, I had a client who told me she has forgotten most of her childhood. She told me she did not want to remember her childhood because it was too painful. Yet here she is in front of me at the age of 56 on multiple medications with depression, anxiety, insomnia, and multiple upon multiple medical issues telling me it's too painful for her to remember. But here's the deal. Our bodies remember. When we are children, our brain is not developed until we are 25 So, our body holds the memory. They say our beliefs are formed around seven years old. So, if you are raised by broken people who tell you your belief is you're not worthy, your opinion doesn't matter, you aren't protected, your feelings aren't validated, Time and time again. So if your beliefs are formed at seven years old, that you are not worthy, that it's all your fault, it's something about you, then day after day, this belief is reinforced by these broken people. How are you supposed to know any differently? How are you supposed to know that these things aren't true? How are you supposed to know that this belief that was created by broken people at seven years old is not true? How are you supposed to know any other possibility, any other choice, any other world other than this? My first memory of my father was one of violence, but not only that, Most of my memories are one of him escaping his emotions. From the time I can remember, my dad had a drink in his hand, a cigarette in his mouth, rolling up weed joints. Day after day, he was always planning to get so fucked up. This was my experience with my dad every single time I was around him. There was never a time I can recall where my dad was not planning to get so fucked up. Yes, he would work. He would go to work from 8 to 4, 8 to 5. But the second he got off work, he was rolling around in his car, smoking a joint, cracking open a beer, getting home, ready to start his party. My dad's 
world always centered around numbing, escaping, partying, and how are we going to take this to the maximum? This is how my father taught me to cope with stress. He taught me you cope with stress by getting so fucked up every single night. But we are responsible. We are good people. We have good genes. We have to earn a living. We are smart. And we're going to get up in the morning and we're going to go to work. But when we get off work, we're going to get so fucked up. Why? My dad would tell me time after time the reason he got messed up every night was because he just knew he was going to die young. However, he made it to his 30s, his 40s, his 50s, and continued to party the same way every single day. I now recognize this was absolutely an excuse Him saying, I'm going to die young, so I'm going to live fast. I'm going to take it to the maximum. This was his excuse. This was absolutely a way for him to justify his daily escape. I have so many memories of my dad drinking. It's so interesting because this evening I was cleaning my counter, my kitchen counter, And I stopped in my tracks because there was a particular glass on my counter. This particular glass was sitting on my counter. This glass was the same glass that my dad used to drink beer out of every night. How did this glass get there? I didn't see it before, but this glass stopped me in my tracks. When my dad died... I had boxes of his dishes and glasses, but most of them are packed up away in a closet or in my garage. This particular glass, I do not recall unpacking. Maybe I unpacked it and chose to forget because it was too painful. But as I'm wiping my counter and I see this glass, it stopped me in my tracks Because all of these memories of my dad drinking came flooding back. In fact, I had to stop and write all this stuff down because it is important for me to acknowledge these memories. Why? Because if I do not acknowledge these memories, I will push them down and I will find my own ways to escape whether it be through food, drinking myself, toxic relationships, being busy all the time. If I do not acknowledge these memories in this moment, then it will continue to fester and fester. When I looked at that glass, it hit me like a ton of bricks. This glass, something so simple, made me realize how much alcohol has impacted my life. It has been in my face from the time I was a little girl. Alcohol in my face, time after time again. I remember the first time I drank a beer. I was around 14 
it wasn't that great. And I didn't really understand why my father thought beer was so delicious. I also remember my dad telling me a story about when I was a baby around three years old. He thought it was the funniest thing how I was three years old, a baby in my playpen, and he tricked me into drinking alcohol. When he tells this story, he would laugh so hard because he said, after I drank this alcohol he gave me, I started doing flips in my playpen, flip after flip after flip. He thought it was the funniest thing to give his precious daughter alcohol. Why would he think that is hilarious? I could never imagine giving my daughter alcohol. I could never imagine handing my daughter some sort of substance to alter her reality, her brain, her beautiful brain. And of course, would not even think that's funny. My dad thought that was so funny that he gave me alcohol at three years old. Now, if you look at the bigger picture, he thought this was funny because he too was given alcohol at a young age. I have pictures of my father in diapers drinking champagne that my grandmother gave him. There's probably at least four to five pictures of him drinking this glass of champagne over and over and over. Before my dad died, about a month or so before he died, he had broken his hip and they could not do surgery because his platelets were too low because of his drinking. His liver was not once young anymore. He was not young anymore. So he had to stop drinking. My whole life, he would also tell me the reason he drank was not because he was an alcoholic. He just liked the taste of whiskey. And he thought it was so funny to say that. I remember when he would say that, I didn't know if I should laugh, cry, how to respond. But I know when he would say that, Christine, I'm not an alcoholic. I just like the taste of whiskey. It would stop me in my tracks. My father was very direct and very transparent for the most part, I guess you could say. But still, it was confusing because here's somebody in front of me time after time after time getting so fucked up every night. He and I had been estranged for a couple years before he died. There was sort of this two-year window where I didn't speak to him. And then he wrote me a letter And at the time, I was still having long COVID symptoms, and I was not ready to speak to him. I was going through so much of my own healing that I could not handle hearing another fucking excuse from him, hearing another lie, him trying to blow smoke up my ass. I could not, I could not handle it. 
And I didn't respond to the letter for months. Then, interestingly enough, one of my friends was living in an apartment who actually lived in the same apartment as my dad. It was so interesting because I pulled the envelope out that my dad, you know, had written me this letter and I sort of vaguely recall the address that was written on this envelope was well, my friend is telling me about the apartment she lives in. I said, that sounds familiar. I think that's the same address as my dad. And I pull it out and it's sure enough, they lived in the same apartment complex. In fact, they lived seven apartments away from one another. So on a Sunday evening, as her and I are talking, we're FaceTiming, and I said, go look at my dad's apartment. His blinds were open. She was able to peek in, and there he was, drinking and watching Fox News. Nothing had changed. So I sat on it for a little bit, and as I continued my healing, I got to a point to where I really wanted to remember those memories. I had stuffed so many memories down of that, of his drinking, putting me in unsafe situations, such as taking me, taking me to bars when I was a kid. He used to love taking to me, taking me to bars when I was a teenager in Texas. In Texas at the time, I don't know if it's a law still, but he loved the fact that a parent could take their kid to a bar and feed them alcohol. He thought that was so cool. And when I became a teenager, I sort of thought that was cool as well. But there was such a deep part of myself that knew this was wrong. And I craved something quite different. But I wanted to bond with my dad. And the only way I knew, to bond with, knew how to bond with my dad was through alcohol, smoking weed, having my friends buy weed from him, him buying weed from my friends, him allowing my friends to come over and telling the parents, you know, if they stay the night, oh yeah, the girls are going to be good. And then two seconds later, we're like drunk drinking tequila. I wanted to bond with my dad because my mother, who has severe narcissistic personality disorder, there was no bonding. It was all sabotage. And so it's so confusing as a child to crave bonding with your parent. But they don't know how to bond. They've never had a bond themselves. Their parent never bonded as well. Their parents, their broken parents, created their broken story as well. So here I am, a teenager, trying to connect with my father. And the only way I knew how was through drugs and alcohol. I could never imagine my daughter, my 12-year-old precious daughter, not knowing how to bond with me except through drugs or alcohol. It's so weird and foreign to me. So 
at the end of my father's life, so after he had written that letter and I sat on it for a while and worked on a lot of my own healing, I was ready because I wanted to ask him questions. I was healed a lot of things, but I wanted to ask him questions because I was curious why he was this way. Instead of feeling so hurt and distraught and whatever it was, I wanted to know sincerely why did our grand why did my grandmother, your mother, give you champagne when you were in diapers? Why did she do this? And then on top of it, his father, my grandfather, who I never met, he died in nineteen seventy. He died of cirrhosis of the liver. He too drank. He too numbed and escaped. So I wanted to know how my father got to where he got. I wanted to hear his memories. His memories of how he was not protected and how the people around him were escaping. I wanted to hear and I wanted to know. So when we reconciled, I asked some questions. Why did my grandmother, your mother, give you alcohol when you were in diapers? He told me she grew up in the Depression era And then when she was about 12 or 13, her mother and father abandoned her for several years. They had gone to California to find job, money, whatever. And so she was right, her and her sister were raising themselves and only had some sort of neighbors. I can only imagine what my grandmother went through. So when the depression was over and then you have World War II and all that, Everybody was celebrating, and they would celebrate with alcohol. And it just continued. (laughs) The celebration never ended. And I can imagine that during that time where my grandmother felt abandoned, she didn't have her parents. Who knows what kind of challenges she had to face as a child, being raised by neighbors and not having her parents. She was not protected. And so I don't know who taught her how to cope, but she married my grandfather, who was an alcoholic, which speaks volumes. They say that when you marry, you usually marry your mother or your father. We unconsciously are trying to heal things in relationships that we didn't get in childhood. And so what's interesting is that we just recreate the same trauma that we had in a person that we marry or have a commitment to. How ironic is that, that we just recreate the same thing that we're trying to escape? It's because it's unconscious partially And the other part is we don't know what to do with that awareness. We don't know how to heal that. 
except maybe to save or rescue an alcoholic person that we married. So when I reconciled with my dad, it was nice to be able to ask him these questions about him. And he probably a few months after we reconciled, he ended up breaking his hip because he was drunk and he went down this steep hill and he was trying to take his trash out. He broke his hip and he sent me a text saying that he broke his hip and needed to go to the hospital. But what's interesting is that he had told me he had broken his hip, but he had did it a couple days before he texted me. He laid there and I bet you a thousand dollars he continued to drink with a broken hip because that's all he knew. I'm sure also he was never taught how to speak up for his needs and protect himself. So he goes to the hospital and he gets released a few weeks later, not able to have surgery because his platelets are too low because of his liver, because of his drinking, because of him escaping So he stopped drinking and I remember going to his house and he was in a fair amount of pain, but he was sober. He didn't have a drink in his hand and he actually this time didn't have weed in his hand. He was completely sober. And when he told me that he stopped drinking because of facing mortality, I told him, I'm so proud of you, dad. I'm so happy that you're not drinking. And I sort of, in a indirect way, made it about me. You know, I I said something along the lines, like, I am so happy. I've always wanted you to be sober. And he literally stopped me mid-sentence and said, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm doing this for me and I'm not doing this for you. My inner child was devastated. Hurt, rejected, how dare you? And then after a few hours later, I realized he was right. He couldn't do it for me. He couldn't do it for anything else other than himself. When we set ourselves up to maybe make a change or try to stop drinking or drugs or whatever, if we're doing it for our child's, our family, court, probation, most of the time, that is a setup for disappointment, failure, and never going to follow through. So now I look at it and I appreciate that my dad said that to me. But what's also fascinating is that when he stopped drinking, I assumed he would be a kind, little, gentle person underneath all that exterior. But what's crazy, he was exactly the same. His personality was the same. He was still direct and transparent. (laughs) But his voice wasn't quite as loud. More soft-spoken. Could be because he was pain. I don't know. But 
I do know that there was this window of time that we had together where we would talk about God. I asked him, do you think God is a verb or a noun? You know, we had deep conversations and conversations where he wasn't slurring his words, where he was lucid and more thoughtful. So as far as memories of him constantly drinking and escaping his reality, his feelings, his emotions, trying to regulate his nervous system. It was constantly in my face. So I'm very grateful that I had, at the end of his life, I had this period of time, this window of opportunity to ask him questions in a curious way, not in an emotional way, just almost like a reporter or interviewer, ask him these questions. And I was certainly surprised by some of his answers. But I do remember when I asked him, why did grandma, his mother, no, not why, did she know that he was getting abused by her husband? And he literally closed his eyes and whispered, yes. He could not even look at me. And that was the first time I saw some real vulnerability in my father. I have viewed my father as as tough as nails. I'm going to kick your ass, fight or flight, beat the shit out of you, say the wrong thing, aggressive, you know, racist. And that was the first time that I was able to see that little boy inside of him who was not protected. And one thing that my father told me for so long was, Christine, I only tell you I love you because you tell me first. He he even pointed out, you notice I've never said that to you. I only say it to you because you told me first. And so, which was sort of shitty to say, right? And it's not even something I even noticed. <laughs> I never really noticed that he didn't say that to me. Maybe I did unconsciously, and that's why I started saying it. I'm not quite sure. But I do know that after he died, I remember him telling me, I was like sort of thinking about that memory of him saying that. And it was just like, damn, man. Like, I mean, I guess I'm happy I taught my dad love, you know. But as I went through our text messages from over the years, Absolutely, it was not true because there were lots of text messages of him telling me that he loved me and I didn't even respond. I just assumed he was drunk. I assumed he was blowing, you know, bullshit to me and I didn't even respond, but yet he continued to say it to me and I appreciate him doing that because Everyone deserves love and hurt people need the most love, you know, and he was definitely hurt. And I'm happy that towards the end of his life, we had this window of opportunity to talk about those memories and to process them on our own terms the way we needed to. Me processing my memories of him. (laughs) has nothing to do with him. How ironic. 
just like him getting sober, had nothing to do with me. And so our memories are our memories. It has nothing to do with anyone else except us. It is us up to us to decide what we want to do with them. You don't have to remember shit if you don't. But I will say this one caveat. Your body remembers. And our bodies are messengers. And they will send signals, signals after signal until your body is screaming. In my experience, in my journey, when I have an emotion or reaction, it is usually attached to a memory. It's not just I have anxiety, I don't know what to do, I'm feeling out of control. It's usually attached to a memory. And lately, I have been feeling sort of this heaviness that's indescribable and not feeling creative. Like, do I want to do this podcast anymore? And I was talking to my friend earlier about that. It's winter time, the sun's not out, some sort of more emo. But when I had that client today, and she was talking about childhood memories and how she did want to remember, and the holidays are tough because she's had her mother died, a couple sisters died. But a few weeks ago, she was in the grocery store and she saw some sort of Christmas ribbon and it sparked a good memory, something she had forgotten about in childhood. So, yes, we have horrible memories. <laughs> we have horrible memories from childhood. But man, we have some really good ones as well. And so, it's up to you. Do you want to remember? And maybe, just maybe, the memory, the pain, the thing that caused you pain is the thing that's going to help you heal. Thank you to all the listeners of How Coronavirus Saved My Life podcast. If you want to know more about me and hear crazy family stories, hop on over to the podcast I make with my sister. It's called The Family Burrito. My sister, Jessie, and I made the podcast after our dad died in March of 2021. We did it as a way to heal our childhood wounds. Now we are healing and now we're having a good time. So if you want to hear more stories, crazy sense of humor, and get to know my personality a little bit better, hop on over to The Family Burrito anywhere you get your podcast streaming. Thank you.